Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Sota Perasha. This week we read the Perasha of Pikudei. It's interesting that many years we uh, we read a double Perasha by Yakel Pikudei. We lump them together because the subject matter is is very very similar. Perasha Pikudei really ends the book of uh, of Shemot, and sometimes we look at how at Shemot as a whole and. and and we see, but I, I want to bring up one one specific point in the, in the the book of uh, in the in the Perasha of Pikudei, and it really relates to uh, to the parshiot that we've been reading that have to do with the construction of the Mishkan and the destruction and the, the the construction of the Mishkan and and the fabrication of the of the clothing for the uh, the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol. There's uh, the the verses in this week's parasha where Moshe is making an accounting of all the materials used. He brings up specifically the the names of each of the stones that were used, the shoham stones that were used on the the shoulders of the kohen gadol, and the the stones that were used on the breastplate of the kohen gadol. <coughs> and he goes into detail. And the question is asked: Where did these stones come from? Where do you find such stones in the desert? And certainly, we might say that that they that they could have brought these stones from Egypt and an other opinion might say that they were able to purchase these stones in the in the desert but it's interesting that the midrash says that these stones actually were given they were donated by the nesiim the presidents of each of the tribes and where did they get these stones these stones came from heaven in the man and as they went out to collect their buckets of man in the morning they would find within the man each of them would find the precious stone, and that precious stone was what each of the presidents of the tribes uh, donated. And the question is, why? Why are the stones, you know, raining from heaven? Why specifically to these people? Is that a good thing? You would think that if God is sending me uh, diamonds from heaven, I would, I would be thrilled. And in in this case, it seems that perhaps it's not such a good thing. The the there's a story that was brought uh, by Hagaon uh, Rav Yaakov Sasson Shlita. He he quotes a story, a simple story from Rab Chaim of Sanz, and the story tells us about a lady who was from a village, and the, she was a poor and destitute woman, and uh, she lived on the edge of the village. Perhaps she lived in a little hut that one of the farmers gave her to live with with her sons and her daughters, and was very difficult. She would subsist on whatever people might give her, whatever she would find. And that's what she would feed her children. And her children would come and say, Mommy, we're hungry, we're hungry. And she turns to heaven and says, Please, heaven, please help out. And she goes outside and she sees on the ground uh, a warm egg, freshly laid egg. And she picks up the egg and she calls her children over and she shows her children, Look, look, children, look at this egg that I found. And the children are so excited. The children are saying that... uh, we're going to have an egg. We're so excited that we're going to have an egg. And the mother says, no, no, children. What we're going to do is we're going to take the egg next door to the farmer and we're going to ask him to let one of his hens sit on the on the egg. And the egg that the hen's going to sit on is going to incubate the egg and the egg will eventually hatch and we'll have a chick. And the children were so excited. We're going to have a chicken. We're going to have a chicken. We're going to get to eat a chicken. We're going to get to eat meat. And the mother says, no, no, children, not so fast, not so fast. What we're going to do is we're going to take that chicken and we're going to have that chicken lay its own eggs. And each day that chicken's going to lay an egg and we're going to we're going to have so many eggs. And the kids are jumping up and down saying, oh, my gosh, we're going to have eggs every single day for breakfast. Eggs every single day for breakfast. That's so, so wonderful. We're so happy. And the mother says, not so fast, children. 
We're going to let each of those eggs hatch. And those eggs are going to become chicken. And we're going to have a whole yard full of chickens. And the kids are so happy and say, oh my gosh, we're going to get to have a chicken in the pot every single night. We're going to live the dream. We're going to have meat every night for dinner. Oh, mom, we're so excited. And the mother says, not so fast, children, not so fast. Because we're going to take those chickens and we're going to sell those chickens. And we're going to buy a calf, a young calf. And that young calf we're going to raise. And that young calf's going to grow. And that young calf's going to start giving milk. And that young calf's going to have other calves. And we're going to have a whole herd of cows. And we're going to take some of those cows and we're going to sell them. And then we're going to buy land and we're going to have a farm. And we're going to grow vegetables and we're going to grow everything you could imagine. And have trees with fruits and a whole herds of cows and sheep and chickens and eggs and everything you would want. And the kids were so excited that they didn't even remember that they were hungry anymore. They were just looking so forward to the future of what this is going to happen, what's going to be, and what what they're going to what they're going to have. And all of a sudden, the mother got so excited with her children, and as she's talking to them and smiling, and they're dancing about what's going to be, she's juggling this little egg in her hand, and all of a sudden, poof, it hits the ground. Now, the rabbi says the intention isn't to discourage incubating the egg and acting in a wise way. Rather, the intention is not to get overly carried away with dreams. Rather, one must get up and do something. Either cook the egg or send it for incubation. We have to utilize the present opportunities instead of just dreaming about the future. And I think this really relates so well to the Nesi'im. It relates so well to the uh, to the president of the tribes and what they went ahead and what they did and where their error is and where we should learn from that and be able to correct it. Last week, when reviewing the donations to the Mishkan, we read a pasuk. It says, The Nesi'im heviu et avneh ha-shocham ve'et avneh ha-miluim la'efod ve'lachoshen. And the presidents brought the stones for the shocham and the other stones for the ephod and the breastplate. Rashi says, he asks a question. He says, he asks, why is the, the, the word nesi'im, the word prince, why is it spelled uh, deficient? Why is it missing the yud? And he answers and he quotes Rabbi Natan and he says, he, he asked a question. Later on, we're going to see that when dedication to the actual altar, when the we see that the princes each bring a dedication each day. And it's interesting, we often would read these parashiyot at the beginning, right when we're going to enter Nisan, and we begin in the month of Nisan, we read each day the donation of each of the, of the princes, each of the presidents of the tribe, and each of them donates uh, the same exact thing, and we repeat the entire donation. So he says, later on, you're going to see that when we donate for the altar, they're first. They come at the front of the line. Why? It says, because when Moshe Rabbeinu got up on the day after Yom Kippur, remember, he comes down from Har Sinai on Yom Kippur. That's the second time with the second set of Luchot. And the next day, he announces donations are being requested to build the Mishkan. So what happened? The Nesim, the princes heard, and they all got together, and they said, you know what? Let the community in general contribute. Let them give whatever they're going to give, and whatever is missing, we're going to supply. And I said, you know, if I was building a synagogue or a mikveh or a school or, or anything, and I had a few guys come over to me and say, Dave, listen, go out, 
do the best you can, reach out to the community, raise whatever money you can. And when it's done, when you're done raising the money, come to us and we'll cover the balance. I would be thrilled. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable thing for, for someone to, to offer. But here they're criticized. They're criticized. Because what happens is, three days later, Moshe Rabbeinu gets up and we say maybe it's the only time in history that someone gets up and says, you know what? No more donations needed. Stop. And what happened? They weren't able to donate anything. Now what happened? The, 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 the stones were lacking. So they were the ones who were going to donate the stones. But donating the stones is a little, little interesting. It seems Hashem was so upset with their behavior that Hashem really didn't want anything from them. So he sent his own stones or the stones himself down for them to collect from their man and give from there. He was really angry. And the question is, why would Hashem be so angry with them? The Gaon Rav Yaakov Galinsky, he says that uh, the tribal leaders were Sadiqim. And they delayed in donating to the Mishkan because they knew that there's a spiritual advantage to someone who completes the job. The Gemara and Sotah tells us a mitzvah is called after the person who completes it. So what were they hoping? They thought the people aren't going to be able to give enough. And because of that, they're going to step in and they're going to do exactly what it takes in order to finish the job. So you would say, hey, you know what? Like we said before, I would be uh, thrilled if I had someone who was willing, willing to do this. In explaining what they did wrong and why were they punished that the, the letter was left out of their name and the fact even that Hashem didn't want anything from them and gave, gave from his own uh, is explained by Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein says the Nesi'im did not have confidence in the generosity of the Jewish nation. And they had no right to suspect that the nation's contributions would be inadequate. They're leaders of the Jewish people. They have to believe that the holy, the chosen people will do exactly what they're asked. Rav Moshe Feinstein brings a second reason. He says the attitude smacked of arrogance. They felt certain they would be needed to make up substantial shortfalls in the nation's contributions to the Mishkan. Each individual must do what he can, but should not think that Hashem needs him, or that only he can meet the needs of the community. And the third reason is their failure to take the initiative. It reflected a lack of rushing to do mitzvah. And we have a rule, Zerizim makdimim la mitzvot. We have to be punctual. Those are the people who perform the mitzvot as soon as possible. And this is especially important for leaders because their actions or inactions are looked at by everybody. Everybody sees it under a, mi a microscope, a magnifying glass, especially today with social media. You can't do anything without everyone knowing about it five minutes later. And the Nesim's lack of immediate participation could have influenced many others to say, hey, if they're not giving, why should I give? You know, my dad used to say, it's very important for a person to be humble in giving, maybe to give anonymously. But always he said, whenever there's a, fund, there's a, there's a uh, fundraising in the synagogue, it's crucial to raise your hand 
and and say what you're giving so that other people should, should see because you're not doing it for your kavod. You're doing it so that other people should be motivated to say, hey, if he's giving, I'm going to give too. And and that's what should have been done here. The lesson is is really that a person giving tzedakah, he has to set an example. He's, and the Nisim, especially as the leaders, should have been the ones who would set the example. The Mikubalim teach us that although a person can can do teshuvah, a person could be mechaper, he could be, he could have a kapara for something that he did. It says that sometimes there's an opportunity that we have, and we only have that opportunity once. And we have to have faith to know that we have to be there when it counts. Sometimes if we miss the opportunity, there's no way to have that opportunity ever again. We often speak about each day. Each day is an opportunity. And if we don't take advantage and accomplish something in that day, we will never have that day again. Today will never reappear. It doesn't come back. Today is today and tomorrow is tomorrow. And each day we have an opportunity to do what we have the opportunity to do. And in essence, because the Nisi'im did not donate in the beginning when they had their opportunity, they failed. And maybe that failure shows some lack of, of faith, lack of trust, lack of trust in, in doing what a person needs to do. You know, my father always would say to us that a person should have good mazal. We tell someone you should have mazal tov. When a baby's born, your mazal should change to tov. When a person gets a new house, his mazal should change to, to tov. When a person gets married, there are various things. But mazal has to do, as my dad would say, with being in the right makom, in the right zeman, but also having the impetus to do something. I, I want to tell you a story, an interesting story, where Hashem puts us in the place. And sometimes He makes things happen. Because we may not recognize, but it's still up to us to go through. Dr. Mayor Wickler tells a story in his book, Ene Hashem, about such a story. He tells about a Rabbi Landau from Bayit Vegan, who once suggested a certain boy to his daughter. His daughter's name was Mirel. Mirel told her father she had so many bad experiences, she really didn't want to go out with another person until and unless her father would meet the boy first. Remember, in those days in Eretz Yisrael, especially a blind date, a blind shidduch date was really a blind shidduch date. The first time they met was in that hotel lobby and they had to find each other to say, are you, are you? They had no idea what they looked like. So what happened was the father agreed. He said, okay, I'll meet the boy before. I'll see if he's good for you and then I'll tell you. And Mirel adds to her father, Abba, please don't forget what I told you last time. Make sure, make sure the boy doesn't have peyot hiding behind his ears. There's absolutely no way I would marry a boy with peyot hiding behind his ears. So Rabbi Landau knew his daughter's likes and dislikes. He told her not to worry. Everything's going to be fine. Eventually, he's able to meet the boy. And the boy's name was Yehoshua. And after the meeting, when the boy turned around to leave... 
Rabbi Landau took a good look at the back of his head to see if he had peot hidden behind his ears. And he smiled because he didn't. So a week later, his daughter Mirel went out with the boy for the first time. After so many disappointments, she was not looking forward to that meeting. But when she came home that night, her face was more radiant than her parents had seen in a long time. They continued to go out day after day, week after week, and six weeks later, they were engaged. A couple of months after that, they had a wedding. Now, a couple of months after the wedding, six months after the wedding, uh, they're invited to stay by the Landau house for Sukkot. Now, when Rabbi Landau was home, he saw that this young man now had peot rolled behind his ears and he didn't understand he was surprised so he sat with his daughter one day when they were alone in the sukkah and he said to her tell me what's going on your husband has peot and Mirel smiled and said you know dad my husband had peot since he was three years old all his brothers have peot but the day he met you he needed a haircut and normally his roommate cuts his hair but that day he wasn't around so but he wanted to get a haircut before he met you he knew it was important and what happened was accidentally the person cutting his hair cut one of the peot off and he said you know what am I going to do he cut one off now I have to make them both even or else I'll look ridiculous so having his sideburn to the point he had the guy cut the other one off and he went to the meeting now he said to himself I'm going to start going out with this girl I'm not going to start growing the peot I'm going to look crazy I'm going to look like a sloppy person so he didn't start growing them they went out for the six weeks then they got engaged he said I'm not going to start growing them before the wedding because then it's going to look strange at the wedding and so after the wedding he started growing the peot again And the rabbi asked his daughter, well, didn't it bother you? And she said, dad, the truth is, the truth is when he told me, I had to laugh. Something that mattered so much before we were married. Somehow I always associated peot with someone being overly serious with somber personalities. And now I see how silly I was. And Rabbi Landau said to his daughter, Marabuma Asecha Hashem. Look at how Hashem works. We have to know Hashem puts us in the place. He gives us an opportunity. The Nesi'im had an opportunity at that point to step up and do what was right. And they lost out. And not only did they lose out, they lost out even on giving the stones because the stones came from heaven because Hashem was so angry. And they tried to make up with it for it by rushing to give the donation at the opening of the Mizbeach, at the opening of the Mishkan. The rabbi would tell us that we have this opportunity, we have to not miss the opportunity. And that's why it's so crucial that we say, rush to do a mitzvah at the first opportunity you have. Rabbi Abitam would explain to us again and again, what's the secret of the Satan? The secret of the Satan is that he doesn't tell you not to do something. He tells you to do it later. He tells you to do it later. He delays until eventually we don't do it. 
And that's where we mess up. That's where we fail. We fail because we delay. And the delay causes this lacking. There's a story that we tell often. A story I heard from the rabbi. He tells of a certain man who lived in a town. And Rosh Hashanah, he was in his town. And the day after Rosh Hashanah, he bids farewell to his family. Because he's going to see, he's going to another town a few days drive to be with his Rebbe for Yom Kippur. He really, every year, wants to be with his Rebbe. Every year he's with his Rebbe. He spends Yom Kippur with his Rebbe. And so this year also, right after Rosh Hashanah, he gets the wagon, he gets the driver, and they start to go. And all of a sudden, they're on their way, and the first day, they have a problem with the wheel, and they have to stop locally overnight. And then that night it rains, torrential rain. And so the wagon, the wheels keep getting stuck in the mud on the road. And they're delayed again. And they only get so far and they have to sleep there overnight. And the rain continues and he's delayed further. And he doesn't know if he's going to make it to his Rebbe. And finally, the weather clears up. And they go back on the wagon and they continue the journey. And as they see the town that they're coming to in the distance, all of a sudden, they hear a crack and the wheel falls off of the axle. Here they are on the road. It's Erev Yom Kippur. They have to get to town, but the wheel fell off. The wagon can't move. What are they going to do? Nobody there. They're in the middle of Nowheresville. There's farms to the left, farms to the right, but... All you see is farmland. You don't see a barn. You don't see a house. You don't see anything. And suddenly they see coming out of the growing stalks a few guys. And those guys say, Shalom Aleichem. He answers, Aleichem, Shalom. He says, what's happening? He says, listen, I'm on my way to town and the wheel just came off. And me and the wagon driver, we're not strong enough to lift the wagon and then put the wheel back on. We need some help. Can you guys help us? And the guy says, well, where are you going? I'm going to be with my Rebbe Yom Kippur. And they say, oh my gosh, you can't imagine. We're all farmers from this area. And every year, 10 of us get together on Yom Kippur and we make a minyan and we stay together for the 25 hours. Right over here, we have a small small shed that we built specific for this so that we would have every year Yom Kippur where we could pray together. He says, but unfortunately this year one of us moved away and there are only nine. But look how fortuitous this is. You're driving through. You still have the whole day to journey to the town. You're going to get there right before Yom Kippur. Why not stay with us? We'll feed you now. You'll stay with us. You'll have Yom Kippur with us. We'll have a minyan with you. It'll be wonderful. And the man said, you know, I would love to, but I have my heart set on being with my Rebbe. I need to go to my Rebbe. And the people say, okay, nothing we could do. They help him. They get him back on the road. The wagon driver keeps going. And he brings him to town. And he's there a little bit before Yom Kippur. He quickly gets something to eat. He goes to pray Yom Kippur. And he's there with his Rebbe. But the whole Yom Kippur, his Rebbe doesn't look at him and he's trying to get his attention but nothing he says okay I'll talk to him after Yom Kippur he comes to the Gabbai after Yom Kippur he's thinking he's going to go back home for Sukkot 
but the Rebbe still doesn't look at him. And so the Gabbai says, you know, you might as well stay a few days, maybe stay Sukkot. The Rebbe's very busy. And so he stays. He stays with them for Sukkot. He goes through the whole holiday of Sukkot. And every day he comes to approach the Rebbe, the Rebbe won't look at him. And finally, the last day, Simchat Torah, he comes to the Rebbe and he says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I've been with you Yom Kippur. You didn't say anything to me. I tried to speak to you in between. You didn't talk to me. The whole holiday of Sukkot, you didn't talk to me. Now Sukkot is over. Rebbe, what happened? And the Rebbe turns to him. He says, I don't know what to tell you. He says, what do you mean? He says, your soul was created to be that 10th man. Your soul was created to be that 10th man. We have opportunities that we're given in life. We have to realize Hashem puts us in a place, puts us in a time, and gives us the opportunity. We're in the Makom. We're in the Ziman. But we have to La'asot. The action is crucial. And it's up to us to do the action. The Nisi'im in some way failed because they didn't take the opportunity they had to give when they would give. To give and encourage others. For all the reasons Rav Moshe Feinstein brought. And sometimes it goes so far beyond that we really can't make it up. It seems they make it up, but in many ways they don't. We have to remember Hashem gives us opportunities. We have to jump at the opportunity. We have to be zariz. We have to be quick. We have to do the mitzvah as early as we can, as quickly as we can, because that's the best way, because we never know. Maybe that's why my soul was created. Wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to getting together with you next week.